I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Hello again, and thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a very interesting story about the bombing of Dresden in February 1945. To hear what sources I used and to get a sneak peek into next week's episode, stick around until the end or check out the show notes. All right, let's get stuck in to Dresden. By 1945, World War II was pretty much over. The war really was over probably by late 1943, early 1944. The Battle of El Alamein, which we've already covered, and the Battle of Stalingrad really started to turn the tide. The invasion of France in 1944, with the Allies landing in Normandy, began to roll up the western part of the Nazi Reich, and the Russians, after Stalingrad, had been basically punching up and down the entire eastern front, overwhelming the Germans and forcing them to be uh, constantly moving backwards. One of the key parts of the Allied plan in the western part of the war, or the western European part, was the constant bombing of German cities. A gentleman named Arthur Harris, nickname was Bomber Harris, was in charge of the RAF's Bomber Command, and he came into uh, charge of that in 1942 and really began to formulate what would end up being uh, a massive bombing campaign led against Germany. When the conversation, the, the, the type of guy that Bomber Harris was, was pretty uh, pretty harsh, or not harsh, I, I don't want to pass judgment on him, but the man was essentially of a one-tracked mind. When the conversation of bombing uh, Rome came up, he said, quote, he had no false sentiment, end quote, about bombing one of Europe's great cities. He said also, quote, I assume that the view under consideration is something like this. No doubt in the past we were justified in attacking German cities, but to do so was always repugnant, and now that the Germans are beaten anyway, we can properly abstain from proceeding with these attacks. This is a doctrine to which I could never subscribe. Attacks on cities like any other act of war are intolerable unless they are strategically justified but they are strategically justified insofar as they tend to shorten the war and preserve the lives of Allied soldiers. To my mind, we have absolutely no right to give them up unless it is certain that they will not have this effect. I do not personally regard the whole of the remaining cities of Germany as worth the bones of one British grenadier, end quote. So that gives you an idea of the kind of man that Arthur Harris, Arthur Bomber Harris was. He also, he was one of the first commanders to really get an idea of, for the RAF, of how to hit Germany. And so what he was doing was he was hitting the northern and western parts of Germany and trying to, well, essentially the, the, the English at this point, the British were trying to hit back against Germany before the uh, Americans really got into the picture. And so in 42, 43, they are running bombing missions against the closest German cities that they could reach with their bombers. And the area bombing that they were doing was successful in that it showed the people back home in Britain that we were somehow striking back at Germany, even if we weren't able to do it with infantry or tanks or in any real effective way on the ground.
As the war went on, the territory of Germany that the Allies were able to hit expanded, and so cities on the southern or in the southern portion and the eastern portion of Germany started to come under the umbrella of the bombing missions coming out of airfields either in France or the Low Countries or even from Great Britain itself. 1943 saw the advent of the round-the-clock bombing, uh, which essentially was the British flew these night missions where they did a lot of uh, area bombing, which is they didn't really target specific locations. They just kind of went into a general part of the city or location that they were hitting and dropped as many bombs as they could in that area. And then the daytime following up would be the uh, precision bombing of the American U.S. Army Air Force. And the precision at this time is not exactly precise. I mean, we're not talking guided missile systems or anything like that, but they figured with large fighter escorts, daytime bombing would be a more precise way to actually hit targets and they were trying to be a little bit more aware of the, the, the various places that they were hitting with these bombs. However, that being said, the Americans were not exactly uh, very good at these precision-type raids. The round-the-clock bombing would uh, allow for the continuous bombing of major German cities on a huge scale... And this would continue for most of 1944, right up until almost the very end of the war. And you saw this massive amount of, of distraction and the hammering of major industrial centers like Cologne it, in uh, uh, Essen, the city of Essen, which is also the home of Krupp Field Artillery Manufacturer. You saw the destruction of Dortmund, along with massive bombing along the Ruhr and the Rhine River valleys. The city of Hamburg suffered 40,000 dead in a massive firestorm that was basically started because of a huge bombing raid run against it. As the Luftwaffe became weaker and weaker, the Allied air superiority over Germany grew allowing these bombing campaigns to become ever more destructive and deadly for the German cities that were targeted. One of the reasons that these massive bombing raids and these the idea of round-the-clock bombing was allowed to continue was that the American Joint Chiefs put together a study that essentially said that predictions for the war went as follows. If the bombing, or the round-the-clock bombing continued the Germans would very likely be done by April. If there was a halt or a lessening of that bombing, the Germans were possibly capable of holding out till November of 1945. And so the idea was, let's ramp up the bombing, keep the pressure on, and keep going until the Germans can't make up on their losses, which at this point in the war, they weren't able to do. The uh, Hitler was in a last ditch attempt, tried to stall or halt the American and British on the Western Front. And his attempt at the Bulge, the Battle of the Bulge, which we'll eventually cover, was ground to a halt and eventually stopped entirely and pushed back. And so once that happened, it really was just a matter of time as the bombing ramped up. In fact, it got so heavy at certain points that. By from January 1st until the end of the war, the amount of bombs that were dropped on the German cities amounted to, in those, you know, four or five short months, amounted to the entire amount of bombs that were dropped in all of 1942. So by if, if the war had gone on throughout 1945, the amount of bombs that would have been dropped on Germany would have probably been somewhere in the two and a half to three and a half million bombs, which is an incredible total. Um, the other reason that the bombing campaign was kept up is at this point, the Germans likely would not have surrendered simply because of the round the clock bombing. 
but it was the round-the-clock bombing in concert with the push of the Red Army on the Eastern Front. At, uh, in 1945, in February, you have the massive offensive in the Silesian area, which needed huge support. So the strategic situation was essentially that the Russians were gaining the most ground on the Germans. The Germans could not keep up. They could not mount a large or a strong enough defense to keep the Russians at bay. And so as the Germans are retreating, and don't get me wrong, the Germans are still a very effective military. The Wehrmacht at this point is still uh, fighting extremely hard and at times successfully, but they just can't keep up with the onslaught. And so they are retreating. And the... Western allies see that their best way to help the Russians keep the pressure on is by disrupting the supplies and the men that the Germans are trying to flood into the Eastern Front. And so if the bombing campaign helps to slow that down or stop it, then the allies in the West are doing the best thing that they can to get the the Russians into Berlin as quickly as possible. So as Germany is teetering Berlin, which in fact had suffered through the bombing raids, and at this point, by the end of the war, Berlin will have been bombed around 350 plus times throughout the war. Berlin itself is threatened by the Russians and Germany really is on the ropes. So on the night of February 13th, morning of February 14th, there are going to be a number of raids by heavy British bombers. These bombers are led by a group of pathfinders, which are uh, mosquito marker planes, and essentially they fly over the targeted area, and they drop these 1,000-pound weights that have blinking red indicator lights, and hopefully they land in the area that the the main force of bombers will be following up and aiming for. And these weighted massive uh, balls or indicator lights are essentially, they're like a 1,000 or 10,000 pounds, and they're extremely heavy and hard to move. And so when the, by the time the, the real true bombers have flown over, it will have ideally for the bombers, been too difficult for ground units to actually try and maneuver these indicator lights into a safer area. And so the British eventually get, the uh, by 1720, the first wave of bombers takes off on its 700-mile trip. And these bombers are the British Lancaster Heavy Bomber, also known as the Lank. And these lanks are four-engined heavy bombers powered with massive, beautiful, purring Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. And these became the principal heavy bomber of the RAF. They also were the best night bombers that the British had. They had these huge bays, bomber bays. And these bays could be adjusted to hold anywhere from a 4,000-pound load to 12,000 pound blockbuster bombs. And these bombs were made to basically blow out an entire city block. So the next time you're in a major city, walk around one block and think about what it would take to actually destroy that. These, these bombs were huge and they were just meant to destroy things. Uh, and so as the bombers are making their way towards Dresden, they know that they're aiming for the timber Allstadt region of the old town, which is the medieval. It's the tightly packed, think of like a quintessential German medieval town where it's all the old wooden uh, buildings that are just, you know, snug right next to each other, maybe like angled, kind of hanging over the little winding roads and, and just perfect, essentially kindling in the center of the city. The, there are 254 Lancaster bombers on this first flight, and it's they've got about 500 tons of heavy explosive or high explosive. 
and 370 tons of incendiary bombs. The bombs in this mixture range from 500 pounds to around 4,000 pounds, and those are the blockbuster, the big knockout an entire city block kind of things. The mixture of the high explosive with the incendiary actually has, uh, a, there's a design to it. There's a purpose behind that. And that is for, to create airflow. The high explosive bombs will hit and they'll blow out water lines, which create huge issues for firefighting and also for, for survivors to try and, you know, get water. They'll be extremely hot. They'll be suffering from a lot of heat stroke and stuff like that after the flames die down. The first thing that they'll want to do is get some water into them. These high explosives will have killed all the water lines, making it very difficult. The other thing that they'll have done is blown out roofs, blown out windows, blown out doors, created massive holes in buildings. And this gives major airflow to the region where the incendiary bombs are going to fall. And that just feeds into the fire. And it, and it essentially creates a massive, massive vacuum. The uh, drop pattern of the first wave is about a mile and a half long. And then it fans out. So at its widest point, it reaches about a mile and three quarters. So it's a huge part of the city. You're looking at miles of square footage of the city just kind of obliterated. One of the region, or reasons that the bombing was so successful at Dresden is that the German AA guns had been removed and brought out to the Eastern Front. The Germans were such in such a tight spot on the Eastern Front that they needed to pull every firing gun that they could find and get it out onto that Eastern Front to, to fight the Red Army. And so the city was essentially denuded. There was very, very little protecting it. The bombs started falling at 2213 and stopped falling at 2228. So think about that. That's 15 seconds. 15 seconds, and you have 881 tons of bombs falling on the city of Dresden, creating a massive, massive firestorm, which would lead to people. There was a reservoir in the, in the center of the city, and unfortunately, as the firestorm from this first wave is hitting, the people are running, trying to escape the flames, and hundreds of people jumped into this massive reservoir in the center of, of Dresden. And the problem is, is that a, a reservoir isn't like, uh, you know, it's not like a swimming pool. There's really no ladders. It's not meant for people to be in it. There aren't like steps to get out. In fact, it's a massive cup with straight, slippery cement siding. And so people who were trying to escape the heat and the flames of the first wave of bombers jump into this reservoir and then end up drowning, which is a, a horrific irony. They, in the, you know, the, in this massive firestorm, you have people drowning because they were trying to stay safe in this reservoir, but ended up having no way to get out and would end up just exhausting themselves trying and drown in the reservoir. Hundreds of people drown in this reservoir. The second wave of bombers comes about three hours later. And the, the reason that they come three hours later is kind of insidious and, and a little horrific. But the idea is the second wave comes when the first responders and the survivors are just starting to try and recover and recuperate from the first wave of bombings. So as much of the equipment and vehicles and people who that are there to try and save other people or try and dig people out of the rubble or administer first aid or, or give shelter, these vehicles and people and locations will be exposed. And that's why the three hour gap is there. That second wave of raiders comes and between 121 and 145, they drop uh, 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 529 heavy Lancaster bombers drop another 1,800 tons 
of bombs over the city of Dresden. So by daybreak, you have almost uh, what, what, what must have been tens of thousands of fires all over the city. The, the firestorm that was created by these two waves of bombers was so powerful that it was literally sucking people right up into the air and, and cooking them. It was pulling trees out of the ground, pulling cars up into the air, sucking buildings into itself as it fed itself and became hotter and stronger and more powerful. The entire Allstadt region, that medieval wooden structured region that we were talking about, the old town as it was known, was absolutely incinerated. And they speculate that there were probably some around 6,000 people in that area of the city at the time that it was entirely incinerated. The, the other problem with the Allstadt region is that the city had mandated that the buildings knock down their basement walls and make them thinner. The idea was that if there was a fire in the building, everybody could run into the basement, knock down the wall and get to the next building, which would ideally not be on fire. Well, because of the use of high explosive and the airflow that was created by the high explosives and then the use of incendiaries, these buildings were all on fire. So people ran down into the basement, punched through the wall into the next building, and that was on fire. So they kept going until they got to the end of the block, and then everybody realized they had no way out. And so as recovery operations were happening, they were finding basements with at the end of roads where, or at the end of a city block where all the buildings had been, all the populations in the buildings had gone basement to basement and then come to a dead end and basically either cooked or suffocated in that one location. The other thing to keep in mind is that the Germans hadn't built a su sufficient number of air raid shelters. So the few public air raid shelters that there were, were not really large enough to fit as many people as needed to be fit into them. So again, people without the aid of the air raid shelters or anywhere safe or anywhere seemingly safe, people were just running pell-mell towards the Elbe River thinking that that would be their safest bet. Uh, one woman survived the bombing on February 13th, and she essentially, she says that uh, when she and her parents, they, they ran into the cellar to take shelter, and she remembers her parents covering her, and then the rest of the people in her building were also in the basement trying to escape the flames. And everybody, all 13 of the other people in that basement were suffocated. So she, after the bombing or after the, a, a little while goes by, she gets out and she climbs over these dead bodies and escapes the basement and is outside and trying to process what's happening. And this young little girl finally realizes that she had to climb over her dead parents when later in that day, recovery operations are happening and she goes back to what she was thinking was her home and finds nothing but rubble and her parents and the rest of the people that lived in her building lined up corpses right in front of where the pile of rubble that was her home was now standing. Another person who experienced one of the horrors of the, the night raids was a, a man named Victor Gregg. He was a British prisoner taken during Market Garden, and he was held in Dresden at this point, and he talks about at a uh, at a certain point after the firestorm hits, he is assigned to a team of, of prisoners that have to go and collect bodies and try and uh, recover as many corpses and count them as possible. And this group, after hours of, of collecting bodies, his group eventually comes to an air raid shelter in the Allstadt region. So this, this basically metal box was supposed to have about a thousand people in it. And his group goes inside, and they're expecting you know, they're expecting to see carnage, whether it be uh, charred and, and smoking bodies and bones, or the suffocated, lifeless corpses of of hundreds of people. And when they get into this air raid shelter, they don't see anything. In fact, they're they're totally shocked that they aren't 
tripping over bodies. Instead, what they realize is that they're walking through this this greenish-brown liquid, this muck. And they realized that what had happened was that the people inside had essentially melted. The next day saw another raid, and this time it was a daytime raid made by the U.S. Army Air Force, and they were flying their beautiful B-17 flying fortresses. Now, this is another four-engined heavy bomber, and it is the quintessential American bomber of the war. It's one of the most mass-produced in history, and these things were, when you think of the Army Air Force or the Air Force of World War II, you're probably picturing a B-17. It's one of those bombers with the little bubbles with machine guns on it and a pinup painted on the nose. These things were pretty amazing at what they did. They were well-made, so they were really good at flying high. They could fly fairly long range with fairly uh, decent speeds. And again, they could go high so they could avoid anti-aircraft fire or fighters but if they ran into trouble they could take a beating some of the pictures if you go on pinterest or online you can find some great pictures of b-17s that have just been riddled and i'm talking swiss cheese riddled with uh with bullet holes and yet they still flew their mission dropped their bombs and found their way home which is incredible the b-17 dropped more bombs during world war ii than any other U.S. aircraft, which is an incredible, incredible amount. It's something like one and a half million tons of bombs dropped on Nazi Germany alone by the, the B-17. So these B-17s, and we're talking the, uh, the, the raiding group that left had 431 B-17s in it, and they were able to find Dresden fairly easily. Well, no, correction. Some of them found Germany or Dresden fairly easily. About 316 made it to the drop zone. A lot of the other ones ended up getting lost and bombing random cities along the way. In fact, Prague, I believe, is one of the cities that had a few bombs dropped on it during this raid. Now, I don't know how they got lost because the the 10,000 plus fires that we were just talking about a minute ago, they created a smokestack that could be seen from the ground from 60 miles away. From the air, the smokestack could be seen 500 miles away. Now, I'm in Bath, Maine. 60 miles away is in New Hampshire. That's another state. 500 miles away for me is probably like um, New York City, which is three or four states away. So it's an incredible amount of smoke that's being created over the city of Dresden. How anybody couldn't find the city, I don't know. But anyhow, 316 bombers make it and they end up getting over the city and they've been accompanied by a massive wing of uh, 780 P-51 Mustangs. And these Mustangs are my favorite plane of the war, they are these really incredibly fast, durable. They, they've got great longevity. The P-51s end up fighting in Korea, uh, and they're deadly, deadly machines. They are fighting a very small German force. The German fighter or the Luftwaffe force fighting over Dresden is something like 20 to 27, 28 uh, BF-110 Messerschmitt uh, fighter bombers. And these... BF-110s, they're very good at nighttime bombing. They are very effective at what they do, but during the daytime, they lose a little bit of agility. They lose a little bit of uh, their efficiency, and they become pretty much sitting ducks for the Mustangs. So whatever little power the Luftwaffe still had was very ineffective in stopping the bombing raids, even during daytime. The 
downside effect of all that smoke. So if you were able to find Dresden using that giant smokestack, the downside was that as you're flying over it, it becomes more and more difficult to find your target and accurately drop your bombs. So what, like we were saying earlier, the Americans like to think that they were dropping bombs precisely, but they really weren't. Uh, in fact, they ended up being so confused and having such a hard time IDing their targets that they ended up having to use an early form of radar, which was called H2X radar. And that was supposed to help them sight in, but again, they weren't really capable of doing it with any great amount of accuracy, which explains why there was another wide fan-like dispersal of their bombs. And again, that's because of the, the hard time that they had finding their targets. And on this day, there was an, another survivor, a gentleman named Carl Heinrich Feiberger, and he was able to, uh, he was sitting at home, he, the bombing starts during the day, and he fled the, the, his home, runs out of the building, runs across the city trying to get away from the fires, trying to get away from the noise and the booming bombs that were coming out of the sky. And he says that, quote, the apartment building where he lived with his family was obliterated, end quote. In that time period, when people lived in apartment buildings, they typically weren't the only members of their family. In fact, they were normally living very closely to most of their family. So at this point, Carl's family's apartment building gets obliterated and his sister and her two small children die. All the people in that building died. And this is an actually a, a, a somewhat happy ending. He's a, he thinks for a long time his mother is dead, but eventually, three weeks later, he's reunited with his mom in the city of Dresden. So these horrific stories, I mean, these are only a few little accounts of what was a harrowing tale for thousands, hundreds of thousands of people went through a nightmare that it would be hard to imagine today. The, the fire, the wind, the, the screams, the smell of burning people, burning cars, burning buildings, just everything was hot, everything was on fire, and everything was smoky. So it just it's hard to express exactly how horrific this bombing was. But there is one good story that comes out of it. There was a large number of Jewish folk who were still in Dresden. And at this point in time, they're wearing the, the yellow star. They're living together in, in, in absolutely horrid conditions. And this, this group of Jewish people are waiting for their deportation. And we're at the point in the war where even the Jewish people, they knew the score. They knew what was going to happen if they got deported. They were going to end up most likely at Auschwitz or Treblinka at some kind of camp, and they would have been liquidated at the camp. But the bombing happens, and it creates such a huge amount of chaos and mayhem that this group of Jewish folk, they're able to rip the, the little yellow star off of their clothing, they shed their identity as, as, as Jews, and then they blend right in with the mass of refugees and victims of the bombing. And it allowed many of these people to end up surviving through the rest of the war, and it's simply because of, of the utter, utter chaos that the bombing of Dresden created. Let's take a quick break here just to remind you guys that if you like what you're listening to, subscribe and throw the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us to get up a little bit on that list and to be heard by more people, which is always cool. If you love what you're listening to, swing over to the Patreon page and donate to the cause. Any amount, literally any amount, helps with research material and recording equipment and also, you're not doing it for nothing. There are some pretty cool tiers that give you access to some different things, like 
you get to get access to our Great Commanders series where I'll cover, I'm going to try to, twice a month, one of history's most brilliant military minds, and you also get episodes early. So other rewards include picking a weapon or a particular battle for us to cover, a dollar a month, a simple dollar a month, not even a cup of coffee, gets you the rank of skirmisher, which earns you my undying gratitude and a shout out on the next episode of Cauldron. To find us on Patreon, just click in the link in the show notes. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get back to the battle. The aftermath of the bombing of Dresden is still to this day one of the more controversial aspects of the Allied fight in World War II. The Allied damage was relatively minimal, if anything at all. The British, of almost 800 airplanes that went up in the air, six were destroyed, and three of those were from friendly fire. The Americans only lost one bomber on that day. For the Germans, it's a different story entirely. According to Wikipedia, the list, and I'm just going to read off the list right now, of buildings that were heavily damaged during the bombing goes as follows. And these were heavily bombed and either damaged or destroyed. 24 banks, 26 insurance buildings, 31 stores and retail houses, 640 shops, 64 warehouses, 2 market halls, 31 large hotels, 26 public houses, 63 administrative buildings, 3 theaters, 18 cinemas, 11 churches, 6 chapels, 5 other cultural buildings, 19 hospitals including auxiliary, overflow hospitals and private clinics, 39 schools, five consulates, the zoo, the waterworks, the railways, 19 postal facilities, four tram facilities, and 19 ships or barges. Along with that massive laundry list of buildings, there was something like 12 to 70,000 homes destroyed. The breakdown percentage-wise, and this is Again, where we start to get a little confused and a little bit of controversy as to whether or not this was a militaristic bombing or a terror bombing, there was 23% damage done to the industrial infrastructure of the city. That's in opposition to 56% of damage done to non-industrial targets. We'll get into it in a minute, but that's where some of the confusion begins. The fact that the firestorm really did just cook the air right out of people's lungs and suck it right out of the sky, uh, it made for, I mean, this is a little gruesome, but it made for a more accurate death count than you would see in cities like Tokyo, because with the suffocation of large numbers of victims, they their bodies were relatively untouched um some of them now that's not i mean that it's hard to really say it without sounding very uh cavalier but the bodies of a lot of people i mean there are accounts that hum grown adults were shrunken down to about three feet or you know the size of of small children because the power and heat that, that was involved in this created by that firestorm, essentially air-fried people, that that uh, babies, anything that was under three or four years old, was essentially incinerated. Um, so obviously there were a, a large, large amount of people who whose bodies were grievously affected and injured, but the suffocation aspect done to, to many of the dead did allow for a fairly accurate count. The city of Dresden itself initially reports that there were 18,375 dead, 2,212 that were seriously injured, 13,718 that were badly hurt, 350,000 that were now homeless, 
and that their final guess after they kind of put everything together, probably the death toll came to about 20 to 25,000. Now that is according to the German officials on the spot. Keep that in mind for later. The, uh, this is one of those things where you really appreciate, and I know that the, it's hard to say you appreciate anything about Nazi Germany, and I don't think it's, it's uh, singular to Nazi Germany. The German reaction was typical. It was incredibly efficient and effective. Immediately as the fires began to blow themselves out, thousands of people whether they be first responders, refugees, POWs, soldiers, were brought into the regions that were worst affected by the bombs and began to clean up. They began to set about uh, putting uh, the city back into a functioning version of itself, using martial law and setting up communication stations and aid centers, fire brigades, to the point where they were able to get hundreds of thousands of hot meals into the bellies of some of the citizens' most shocked civilians, or the city's most shocked civilians. So think about that. In the wake of this massive bombing and with a war on two fronts, German efficiency, which is, I know, a stereotype, really was capable of going about kind of righting the city and getting it back into something like a functioning metropolitan area. So why was Dresden targeted? I mean, that's a great question. That's, that's a key question here because it seems like if we're just bombing the city to scare the hell out of the Germans, then we're in pretty uh, questionable territory here. And the damage that we've done to the city is, is irreversible at that moment and, and extreme. So why was Dresden targeted? There were a, a, a few smaller previous attacks on the city, but they were nothing close to what actually happened on, on February 13th through the 15th. And the, the reason that Dresden was targeted at this point in the war, well, for one, there weren't many other cities that were still fairly intact. With the, the small number of bombing runs that had been committed against Dresden, it remained relatively unmolested at this point up until the war. Most of Germany's other large industrial cities were essentially rubble at this point. Uh, at this point, the, the city of Dresden was the seventh largest city at this time, and it was still almost unbombed. So it was just by virtue of existing in its state that it was existing in, it was a target. According to the German high command by itself, there were 127 medium to large factories producing war material in Dresden, in or around Dresden. And this included anything from weapons tech to war tech. So you've got aircraft components, poison gas, AA guns, field guns, optics, gauges were all being made in and around the city of Dresden. According to Ian Kershaw, who I used as one of the sources here, he said, quote, most of its industry was involved in war production, end quote. So now you have two reasons. It's, it's, it's on its feet and it's still functioning. Those are two valid reasons for bombing. The pre-war propaganda itself put out by the Nazis claimed, quote, it was one of the most industrial locations in the Reich, end quote. So the Germans themselves are saying it's a war or it's an industrial city. There's 50,000 workers, able-bodied or otherwise, within the city area. Those are two excellent reasons for bombing the city. There's also a military barracks, a munitions depot, and a rail yard. The rail yard is a key part here. Because one of the main reasons that we bombed Dresden and most of the major transit sites all throughout Germany was because one of the ways that the Germans were effectively or semi-effectively slowing down the Red Army was by bringing fresh troops from the Western Front putting them on trains and bringing them from the west to the east and plugging them into the fresh uh, or into the 
into the line on the Eastern Front to give a break to some of the hard-pressed veterans. So one of the ways that we stop that or slow it down is by hitting major rail junctions. And Dresden was one of those. It, it, it functioned basically as a hub with a north-south transit line and a western-eastern transit line. It essentially was a, if you think of a cross, it was at the middle of the cross. So obviously, that's another reason why it's a good target. So now you have three. It exists, it's functioning, and it allows for uh, transit. The last two reasons are that there's an impact on the rear lines in the east. So with Dresden being so close to the German Eastern Front, you know that there is a good amount of soldiers fighting in the, the Eastern Front, and a lot of them will likely have some kind of contact to Dresden. And now those guys are wondering, oh my God, is my family okay? Is my home still standing? My city has been bombed. I don't have much ways or much of a way to contact that uh, family and friends. It keeps them distracted. It just heightens the uh, the distraction and it keeps the the German soldier from fighting as effectively as he could. And then the final one, and this one again, more of a psychological, a lot like the uh, the the reason for bombing them in terms of keeping the, the German soldier uh, occupied with emotional issues. This last one is a psychological one in that it is the bombing of Dresden is maybe an attempt to further impress upon the Russians and Stalin in particular that a continuation of the Red Army's move across Central Europe would be a bad decision. That once the war is over, the war needs to be over. Otherwise, the massive striking force of the Allied bomber air forces will come crashing down on Russian cities. So those are the arguments for. The city was still unmolested. It was still producing war materials. It was functioning as a transit hubs, ferrying German soldiers from the eastern to the western front. It allowed for us to show the uh, uh, the Russians the power of the Western Allies air forces. It heightened the emotional and physical stresses on both the German soldiers in, at the front and the German government back at home. So those are all very valid reasons to strike a, a city in terms of bombing. The arguments against the bombing are, in my opinion, just as strong. And that's where we get a lot of the issues and confusion, because the arguments against it are as follows. The civilians were collateral damage. They were not necessarily targeted, but by targeting the city, you strike the civilians. And without precise targeting, it was known that those civilians would die and that the military military targets might not actually get hit. One of the books I used was Archer Ferris Herwig's history, uh, World History of Warfare, and they say in it, quote, what Germany did sporadically against Warsaw, Rotterdam, London, and Belgrade, the Western allies did systematically against every city in Germany and Japan, killing millions of Axis civilians, end quote. And this is true. The, the entire bombing efforts over Germany was far more effective in killing millions of civilians than any of the bombing or uh, artillery bombardments of, of allied cities or allied army units. Now, that being said, it's not really a great defense, but I think that the idea that the, the question that should be asked, if we kill civilians without regard, does that make us any better than the Germans or any better than the Nazis, I should say? And one, so you're starting to talk about moral reasons. Uh, is there a morally 
clear way to go about winning the war without becoming what you're fighting. A Freemason Dyson, who's one of Britain's most eminent physicists, worked at Bomber Command through the end of the war, and he said, quote, it eroded his moral beliefs until he had no moral position at all, end quote. So essentially, this, this dilemma was, we know that this is a good way to go about ending the war, or at least weakening the Germans to the point where ending the war becomes a matter of, of course. But in doing it, are we becoming the monster that we're trying to defeat? And I, I'm not sure if we ever get a clear answer on that. Tens of thousands of refugees had been flooding into the city, and it was swelling the city's uh, ability to handle themselves. It was, it was really becoming difficult for the city to handle already. So if we add in a firestorm and a heavy bombing, we're really complicating an already uh, messy situation for the Germans. Maybe some people would argue that maybe we should have just let the refugees swamp the infrastructure of the city and let them kind of become um, a muddled mess on their own, that we didn't need to add to it, that they were doing a good enough job on their own. That's two reasons there. You've got the moral quandary about killing civilians, and then you've got the idea that the refugees would have done the job of creating chaos and confusion all on their own. The other, uh, one of the other reasons is the cultural loss that was endured at Dresden. You have a uh, essentially beautiful, quintessential, old European city. It was known as the Florence on the Elbe. It had a Baroque skyline that was beautiful with all these old uh, museums and, and palaces and just wonderful old buildings. Kurt Vonnegut called, described the skyline as, quote, the skyline was intricate and voluptuous and enchanted and absurd. And the old town of Dresden, which is that, that Allstadt region, was an ancient medieval area. And, and that history, the history that those buildings saw is gone forever. And the idea that certain cities like Edinburgh and Rome and Paris weren't touched was something that sticks with a lot of Germans even today. And the argument against bombing Dresden is clear that the, the cultural loss to not just Germany, but the world because of the bombing of Dresden is something that we, we have to really grapple with and, and try and try and figure out whether or not it was worth it. And finally, the, the best argument, so you've got the civilian loss and the moral quandary, the refugees and the potential chaos that they would create on their own, the complete loss of culture that Dresden, uh, when Dresden was bombed, took place. And then the final one, which is probably the most compelling and also the most difficult to really parse through, is that the war was already won. At this point, it was over. There was no way that the Germans could have continued to fight and make good on the constant losses and the constant uh, pressure that the Allies were putting on both fronts. The amount of tanks and planes and equipment, the raw goods and resources that were needed, the Germans just could not make up the, the gap. And so with that in mind... Was there any real point in continuing the massive bombings? Uh, uh, one of the quotes from uh, one of my sources, which is uh, Max Hastings, he writes, quote, Yet it remains a blot on the Allied conduct of the war that the city attacks were allowed to continue into 1945 when huge forces of aircraft employed sophisticated tech against negligible defenses and German industrial output could no longer much affect the outcome. So that's the argument for and the argument against. One of the things that I noticed while researching and doing uh, Instagram posts about the, the bombing of Dresden is that there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misinformation. I hate to use the term fake news because of everything that comes with that today. 
But in this particular situation, there is quite a bit of fake news. And it's because of maybe the greatest fake newsman of all time. And that's Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister for the Nazis. And his immediate reaction was absolute outrage. He was pissed. And right off the bat, he starts, uh, once the, the, the body count comes out as 25,000, Goebbels adds a zero and decides that there are 250,000 dead at Dresden. And Kershaw, in the, uh, the book that I used as a source, the name is escaping me, but he's got a great quote. And he says, the story of Dresden goes from, quote, from horrific reality he created even more horrific and long-lasting myth, end quote, because Goebbels is lying. There were 25,000 dead at Dresden. That's from the officials in the city. Goebbels adds a zero and then leaks it to the AP, and the stories start going essentially viral for their time period. Uh, Goebbels is frothing at the mouth. He's citing Geneva Convention, which is fucking ironic. And he claims that there's no war industry in Dresden, that it was a cultural center, that there was no actual, uh, there were no actual weapons being made there, that it was, it was riddled with refugees and that they, they died by the, the hundreds of thousands. Kurt Vonnegut, the famous author who, who wrote Slaughterhouse Five and was a POW and actually witnessed the bombing of Dresden, he actually, uh, backs up what Goebbels said here and says that while he was there, he only saw, quote, cigarette, clarinet, and bike manufacturers or in uh, factories, end quote. And so that, you know, take that for what it is. I don't know. I, I think Kurt Vonnegut probably has an maybe a little bit of an agenda or a slant uh, because he becomes vehemently anti-war after what he saw at in Dresden. In fact, I think Slaughterhouse-Five might be the quintessential anti-war uh, book of maybe all time. But it is what it is. Goebbels claims that he, that that's the case, that there's no war industry, that it's it's purely just this Baroque cultural uh, jewel in Germany, and that 250,000 people die, and he even starts dropping leaflets on Allied soldiers' positions that show two charred children's bodies from Dresden. Now, Goebbels is not alone in getting some of the blame for this conf confusion because in a, a, a bit of a misstep on his part, Winston Churchill is writing a minute to his air chief, quote, it seems to me the moment has come when the question of bombing of German cities simply for the sake of terror, end quote, and from there it's off to the races. Now, eventually... He's convinced to redact this minute that he's uh, written, withdraw it and rewrite it and reissue it. But at this point, the damage is already done. Uh, at a press conference after the bombings have happened, the Air Commodore Colin McKay Grierson or Grierson tells journalists, quote, first of all, they, which is uh, he's talking about Dresden and similar towns, are centers to which evacuees are being moved. They are centers of communication through which traffic is moving across to the Russian front and from the Western front to the East. And they are sufficiently close to the Russian front for the Russians to continue the successful prosecution of their battle. I think these three reasons probably cover the bombing. And end quote. And essentially what he's saying are all the reasons for bombing the city of Dresden. The problem is, is that after the press column, uh, press conference, a columnist comes out named Howard Cohen, and he says, quote, the long awaited decision to adopt deliberate terror bombing of German population centers as a ruthless expedient to hastening Hitler's doom, end quote. So now we've got two references to the word terror, and we have a air commodore coming out basically saying that the the whole sole purpose of bombing Dresden is to help the Russians, but that there's also the added benefit of refugees being in the area. And so, like I said, we're off to the races. The confusion is only going to get deeper. Bomber Harris 
He says after the bombing of Dresden, he says, quote, The feeling, such as there is, over Dresden, could be easily explained by any psychiatrist. It is connected with German bands and Dresden shepherdesses. Actually, Dresden was a mass of munitions works, an intact government center, and a key transportation point to the east. It is now none of these things, end quote. So Harris is saying exactly what we've been talking about. The city of Dresden was a target because it was a functioning city producing war munitions, war equipment. It still had a functioning Nazi government center, and it was still capable of moving men and material from one front to the other, and that after the bombing of Dresden, it was not capable of any of those three things. So a final note here. Was the bombing of Dresden a success? That's kind of hard to say. Uh, I'm not sure I'm qualified to make that call. The factories that were producing war material, a lot of them survived. A lot of them were destroyed. The war definitely continued after the bombing of Dresden, but the German position was likely weakened. There were, according to the Germans themselves, many factories that were making a variety of war goods and railways and communications that were destroyed by the bombing. The rail yard was heavily damaged. Munitions and equipment would have been disrupted, and that has to be considered a success if you are looking at it from an idea that you're trying to destroy those particular things. Were the Soviets aided by the bombing? I would think yes. I think any help for Sovi the Soviets was good, and, and it definitely helped to speed up the end of the war. Stalin would also have seen the U.S. and the British capable of mounting a massive uh, air attack repeatedly, and that probably would have kept him from maybe being you know, super aggressive and militaristic immediately following the war. Anything that could happen to help move the war to its conclusion quicker, I think would be considered a success. The shorter a war, the less people die. The longer a war, the more people will die. And that's just the simple math of a massive total war like World War II. Most German cities were pounded into dust in the process. I'm not supporting that. I don't think that that is ideal, but I'm not sure that there's an, a, another option. I don't think that you win the war as quickly as you do in May of 1945 if you don't bomb every single city producing war material. The other kind of controversy that comes out of of the bombing of Dresden is again that body count the the muddling of the water or the muddying of the water by Goebbels gets it to the point where people are still claiming that there are 200,000 dead the the city of Dresden itself had an independent commission come in in 2005 they were tasked with investigating all of the records, the information, the data, and the intelligence from the bombing until modern times. In all of their investigation, they claimed that at the low end of the death toll, there was probably about 21,000. And at the high end of the death toll, there was probably about 27,000. So really, that initial count by the city of Dresden, 25,000, something like that, was fairly accurate. The 200,000, 250,000, I've even seen 500,000. These are outrageous numbers that were put out there by one of the greatest propagandists of all time.
that was horrifying and it was one of the worst stories about World War II that I've read so far but it was fascinating it was very interesting I learned a lot I hope you learned a lot uh, it was a beast of an episode so there was a ton of information to cover if you he hear anything that's wrong or you think that I got something incorrect shoot me a message on the website or DM me on social media I'll correct it in the next episode or put up a correction online start sending in your theories for this particular one I want to get those arguments as to whether or not you think it was justified or you think the bombing of Dresden was not justified I'll read some of those with Angelo in the next theory cast um, also keep in mind check out the website in the show notes for any of the sources that I use you can also send in your theories you can check out some cool maps diagrams images for more images and almost a daily kind of update on the the different stories and battles that we're talking about check out Instagram and Facebook for a lot of these cool images and little historical blurbs and facts and also you get to vote on some of the battles that we cover don't forget, rate us, review us on iTunes, please. All right, next week we are covering the Battle of Cusco, which has everything from the Inca Empire to conquistadors and the battle for the New World. All right, thanks for listening. Have a good one. <laughs>